Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. Despite the fact that our nation is at war, multiple wars, and the economy is going bad, one of the biggest issues we've been facing in our country is health care reform. It's been highly politicized, and it would be great if we could cut past the hype and find somebody trustworthy to hear from about what the health care reform legislation is really all about. What does it really mean to people on a practical basis? And we found the perfect person to speak to about this. This is Dr. Jack Resnick. Dr. Resnick is a dermatologist working at the University of California, San Francisco, and he played an important role for the American Academy of Dermatology in keeping up with healthcare reform so that the academy could provide reasonable input into the process. Jack, it is so, so kind of you to be on the show, taking time to, to be with us today, because I imagine you spent a lot of time learning about the healthcare reform legislation. Tell us, how did you get into it, and, and, and what was involved in learning about it? Steve, I appreciate the invitation, and it's a pleasure to talk to you and your audience about this today. Um, The main entree to my involvement was really through two different organizations, Uh, the first of which is I'm in the middle of a term serving as the chair of uh, the Council on Government Affairs of the American Academy of Dermatology, a group that represents uh, dermatologists. What timing? You lucky guy. (laughs) If you're going to do a job like that, you might as well do it during an interesting year. So... Uh, so that was one way, and then the other way is I also uh, represent dermatologists in the American Medical Association's House of Delegates and was somewhat un- involved in that venue as well. So how much time and, and did it take to learn about the health care bill, and, and what did you do? Did you just read it cover to cover? Or? Well, I'm incredibly lucky in that both of those organizations uh, both have a large number of physician volunteers who are very involved in advocacy and in looking at these things and also have really, really smart staffs who work full-time. So I have uh, the advantage of advocates and attorneys and a number of other people I work with who can help. Um, I did read the bill cover to cover, so I guess that puts me into a group of people who may have psychiatric illness or something yes. else, but I, I, I did read them cover to cover, cover as things went on, and, and so that helped as well. And, and you have a background in, in health services, public health research? I do. I, I did a fellowship. This has sort of always been an interest of mine and, and uh, did a fellowship uh, after my residency program, and so that's one of the hats I wear as well. So you are entirely well qualified to help us, and, and I'm going to be directing listeners to an article that you wrote in the journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, 
But um, I love the way you put out, point out that people already hold very strong and varied opinions about the merits and drawback of the bill, and that you're going to help us understand objectively what it's really all about. Well, I'll give it a try. I think it, it's tough because the way this uh, process happened actually has made it more difficult for physicians and patients and, and everybody out there to really understand uh, the contents of, of the proposals as they evolved. And I think that's true for several reasons. First of all, this is a very large and complex uh, reform bill, and so that, that made it tough. Um, it also uh, didn't help that, that the debate was so passionate and so partisan, uh, so the tenor of the discussion probably made it more difficult for everybody to understand what's going on. And then thirdly, I, I think depending on who your news sources are, and, and that's one of the things that seems to be happening in our country lately, depending on what blog you look at or what cable news station you look at, you could have entirely different views of what the bill actually did or didn't contain. So it was a tough year to really follow what was going on. All right. Well, let's just start with insurance. They didn't create a single-payer system, but they're going to reform the insurance market. What, what does this bill do to do that? Well, I think there are a number of things that that, uh, that happen on that front. And, and some of the insurance reforms probably you could categorize as some of the least controversial, most broadly supported provisions of the bill. So uh, there are a number of things that physicians and patients have been frustrated about in terms of the way insurance companies go about their business for several years, and the bill does set out to to fix or repair a number of those things. So these are the things your listeners have probably been reading about in the newspaper. Beginning in 2014, the bill will no longer allow insurance companies to exclude those people out there with pre-existing conditions from, from getting insurance or even to have their premiums increased because of those pre-existing conditions. So the premiums for insurance will only be allowed to vary based on your age, the region of the country you live in, how many members of your family you're trying to get covered, and whether or not you smoke. So those will be the only ways that premiums will be allowed to vary. There are a number of other things. Uh, some insurance companies would place caps on how much they would spend on you in a year or over the course of your lifetime, and, and those things will go away and insurance companies won't be able to turn you away when you try to either apply for insurance uh, or renew your insurance. So most of those things actually don't take place until 2014. There are a few things that take place uh, a little quicker, and many of them have rolled out this year. Uh, your listeners may have heard about plans that actually do cover dependents now have to allow those young adults who are under age 26 to remain on their parents' policy if they want to. Um, children actually, starting now, will no longer uh, be excluded from insurance based on pre-existing conditions, um, and a number of other things that sort of take place er earlier as well. There's some, some neat things. You also mentioned that um, specifically they won't be able to charge differently based on genetic information. So I guess people will be less fearful about being tested for their propensity to develop, say, breast or colon cancer um, for fear of they're in, it affecting their insurance. That's certainly the hope, and I think on the health insurance front we've done that. There are other areas where people still might be able to be discriminated against based on those results. So in terms of buying life insurance or long-term care insurance, there are other areas in which this probably needs to be addressed. But at least on the health insurance front, that, that probably will be a, a positive as we sort of develop and learn more about these tests um, there are times when they'll be appropriate to use, and we certainly don't want to chase people away from them. Well, 
you know, these things seem like these these uh, insurance reforms seem like things that everybody could agree on. Why, why did they create such a massive, complicated bill? Why didn't they just narrowly say, okay, we're going to just implement the following things. We're going to let young people stay on their insurance until the age of 26. We'll eliminate lifetime limits on, on, um, on how much the insurance company will pay. We'll require them not to exclude children with uh, pre-existing conditions. It, it seems like that would be something um, that there wouldn't have had to have been so much partisan debate about. It sounds like a really appealing way to go. I, I agree. The problem is that there's a lot of interconnectedness in the way the system works. So I'll, I'll use one example to sort of illustrate this. So let's just say you told the insurance companies, okay, you can't exclude people based on pre-existing conditions anymore. And anytime somebody wants to sign up for insurance, no matter what illness they have, you have to take them. Well, I think you and me and everybody we know would say, there's no reason for me to buy insurance now. I'll just wait till I get sick. And if the insurance company can't turn me away, um, then I'll just buy my insurance then. And so nobody would actually be in the pool until they got sick. And, and the way insurance really works is that all of us have a personal responsibility to pay into a system so that when we need it, it'll have the resources to take care of us. So if you're going to have these insurance reforms, you really have to have everybody in the system. And you can imagine there's sort of a domino effect. If you say that everybody has to be in the system, but you've got people who maybe can't afford it, then you need subsidies to help those lower-income folks get insurance. And if you're going to have subsidies, then you have to drum up some revenue to help pay for those subsidies. And one thing sort of just keeps leading to another, and then you can see how the bill got to be so big. Yeah, so you either do nothing or you do the whole thing. You can't go halfway. You know, I think already in the news there was a nice example of this. You mentioned in your article that, that the ban on coverage um, on coverage exclusions for pre-existing conditions for children begins this year. And I was reading in the news that uh, several large insurers were saying, well, that's fine. We're just going to stop writing coverage for children altogether because if you say that you can't exclude children um, for their pre-existing conditions, then there's no reason to for anybody to sign their children up till they get ill. Yeah, this is exactly what we were talking about. And, and this will sort of fix itself probably in 2014 when everybody's in. But this is one of those things that I think both lawmakers and even the insurance companies initially had thought this was one thing that could be done sort of up front uh, because of the fact that many of the other provisions don't take effect for a few years. And I suspect many insurers, once they saw what it was going to cost them to do to do this, are, are taking a step back. But it really does illustrate why you can't eliminate pre-existing conditions um, without mandating that everybody's in the insurance pool. You know, I, I have a weird view of insurers among docs. You know, I... I imagine the insurers are looking at this and going, this is really great because we really hated turning away people. We really want to help people. Now that we have a level playing field and everybody mandated to participate, this is going to let us help uh, more folks. Well, I think there's there's probably some truth to that. I think uh, the insurer, you know, insurers are like everything else. They have good qualities and bad qualities, and, and I'm sure many of them have – a benevolent desire to help take care of people. Um, but I think, uh, you know, they they haven't been out seeking these changes in the past, and it really it did require some some push from Washington to, to make this happen. I mean, one of the things we see when we look at the private insurers um, over the last few years is that the, the amount of money they spend on administrative overhead and on supporting some of their senior executives to, to the tune of many tens of millions of dollars in their salaries 
when you look at that, that's all money that's being taken out of the pool that you and I as physicians can, can use to help take care of patients and that can pay hospitals and pay pharmaceutical companies for the care that everybody receives. So one of the interesting things this bill does is to treat health insurance a bit like some other forms of insurance in certain states are already treated, like car insurance and life insurance, and says to insurance companies, well, for every dollar that you collect in premiums, we expect you to spend a reasonable majority of that money actually taking care of patients and paying for patient care. So um, the bill says, depending on the insurance market you're in, that, that between 80 and every, 85 cents of, of every dollar collected actually has to be spent on patient care. So that's something that physicians have actually been arguing for for, for some time. I noticed you noted in your article that, that that kind of issue will get into the semantics of what's administrative and what's clinical care. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you're already beginning to see insurance companies try to make arguments about things that probably you and I and our patients wouldn't think of as clinical care that they want defined as falling into that bucket. So that'll be interesting to watch in the next few years. Okay. Um, so the, there's the health insurance reforms on one side, and then there's the mandate to participate on the other. Tell me, what, what's the mandate like? The mandate essentially says to individual patients and individual citizens mm -hmm. that there's an expectation that they um, either are provided or provide themselves with health insurance. And as we talked about earlier, this is so that there will be more people in the system uh, so that we can have a system that makes a little bit more sense um, and so that we can make those requirements on health insurers that we talked about. And this is really moving into the more controversial part of the bill because there are people out there who who genuinely believe that, that it's not the role of government uh, to tell people that they have to insure themselves. And on the other side, you have people who say, look, as a country, we're all going to be paying and, and currently, frankly, pay for health care for people who choose not to have insurance and that it's a matter of personal responsibility that people uh, participate in the system that's eventually going to care for them when they're sick uh, either way. So how much will people be required to pay? It really depends, and we're going to continue to have uh, – this bill really doesn't um, change dramatically the sort of patchwork system that we have in this country for providing insurance. So there will still be a majority of people who will get insurance through their employers, um, and that's, that's unlikely to change dramatically. But when you look at individuals who have to buy insurance on their own – um, which is a much smaller percentage of the population, but, but they'll be uh, the ones who are really required to go out and get coverage if they don't already have it. And um, there will be subsidies in place so that people who make uh, less than what's called 400% of the federal poverty level, the federal poverty level, as I recall, is about $10,000 for an individual or about $22,000 for a family of four right now in this country. So if you make less than four times that amount, um, then and there actually will be federal assistance to help pay some portion of your premiums on a sliding scale. One of the things that a number of physicians are concerned about is that um, while I think there's enthusiasm among some groups that this will provide uh, insurance through the private sector, through private insurance companies, for about 16 million additional people who were uninsured in the past, that another 16 million people are going to have that coverage provided through the Medicaid program. The Medicaid program currently, in order to qualify for it, it varies state to state, but you have to be really poor and have some second way to qualify. So you have to be poor and disabled, poor and pregnant, poor and have young children, poor and blind, etc. 
Um, but, but after the bill takes effect in 2014, basically everybody who's under 65 and whose income is below 133% of the federal property level, so that would be more like $14,000 for an individual per year, uh, will automatically be enrolled in Medicaid. And, and because the Medicaid program is largely run by the states and because it has really historically had some significant challenges because of very low payment rates for hospitals and physicians for services, um, there are a lot of concerns about how patient, this large number of new patients enrolled in the Medicaid system are going to be able to get access to care. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. We're speaking today with Dr. Jack Resnick, an expert on the recent health care reform bill that passed. Jack, you said that most insurance is probably still going to be made available to people through their employers. I think some people are worried about unintended consequences, that when you create this safety net or when you create other approaches that the employers are going to say, heck, we don't have to cover the insurers now. We'll just put it on the government. Is that, why do you think that's not going to happen? Um, well, I think there always are risks of unintended consequences, and, and, and there are a number of those potentially that could happen with this bill. Um, one thing that the bill says to employers is that actually for large employers, it requires that they continue either to provide insurance coverage to their employees or if they don't, and to the extent that they have employees who uh, make a low enough salary that they would then qualify if they don't get insurance from their employer to get a subsidy from the government, that the employers would then have to actually reimburse the government for some of the cost of those subsidies. So if you're an employer and you have more than 100 employees, you're going to be required to continue to either provide insurance or pay these penalties. Now, employers who have less, uh, uh, actually less than 50 employees, sorry, it's 50 instead of 100, there, there won't be a requirement for them to provide insurance. So um, you may have many small employers who, who, uh, who could continue not to, to provide coverage. In the short term, those... Uh, particularly small employers who have less than 25 employees actually get some help from the government. And, and many of them who uh, try to cover their employees and provide coverage now will actually get a tax credit to pay them back some percentage of the cost of that coverage. Okay, so we have millions more people insured. And I guess in some ways we were paying for their health care anyway, but somehow... It would seem like if you're adding that many new insured people, you're going to have to pay for it somehow. Where's the money for this come from? Well, that's a bit of a patchwork as well. And this, again, gets into some of the controversial areas of the bill. Um, there are a whole bunch of, of different new revenue sources that are that are brought up. In I order love that to, word, revenue source. You mean yeah, taxes, exactly, right? <laughs> taxes, exactly, to pay for uh, mostly the cost of the, of the subsidies. Uh, both the subsidies for individuals who uh, are going out and buying insurance under the new mandate, um, as well uh, as some of the other pieces of the bill. So the, the, the largest sources of, of, of tax or revenue in the bill are, are as follows. So people have heard a lot about Medicare cuts. Um, this is interesting because the big Medicare cut that's in this plan actually is a cut to a thing called the Medicare Advantage Program. Yes, people have been talking about this, that people don't want to lose their Medicare and the, the Medicare Advantage that they're really happy with. Yeah, and I think that sort of varies from state to state. This is a program that, that, that's very different in different areas of the country, but it was created in the late 90s. And the idea was to give Medicare patients a choice to either stay in traditional Medicare 
And there are a lot of advantages that patients enjoy in the traditional Medicare program. They can go to any participating physician. They don't need referrals. There's no gatekeepers. The rules are very clear. But if they wanted to, they could actually sign up with a private insurance company instead, and they'd find themselves usually in an HMO or a PPO-type plan. And these are the type of plans where often people do have to have a limited network of physicians or start with their primary care doctor before seeing a specialist. Um, but they would be in the private health care market instead. And then the government would take the money that they probably would have spent on that patient in the Medicare plan and instead give it to a private insurance company to administer this. And the first question you would ask is, well, why would any patient want to do this? Because they're losing some benefits and that they, they may have a more limited choice of physicians or they may have higher co-pays than they would have under the Medicare plan. And the reason, reason largely was that these plans were able to offer some benefits that might not have been covered under Medicare. So before the Part D program existed, for example, a lot of these plans offered drug benefits as part of the plan, and that's a little less relevant now with Part D. But there are a number of other things they threw in. Sometimes it would include dental care. Sometimes it will include vision care. Uh, in some parts of the country, these plans are famous for keeping the gym industry alive by providing gym memberships. So there are some things that were popular with certain members. Yes, The, you know... problem, the, the big problem with these plans is that in order to entice insurance companies to do it, because insurance companies have a lot higher administrative overhead than Medicare does, they ended up having to increase and increase and increase the amount of money that was being given to these programs. So actually, we were spending as much as 14% more per patient uh, who were enrolled in these programs compared with what Medicare would actually spend. So the, the taxpayers were being charged substantially more to keep these programs going. That's fascinating. I... I seem to remember years ago when our medical center was worried about uh, its long-term stability that it created some type of HMO-like product for these patients and it offered, you know, to pay for medicines free. And, and, and in doing so, they ended up enrolling the sickest uh, Medicare patients they could find who were on multiple medicines. I think the, the right way to do it was to... Um, set up the enrollment on the fifth floor of a building with no elevator. Yeah, yeah I've definitely heard stories about things like that happening. And, and when we actually look at the numbers, these plans somehow have been quite effective at attracting some of the healthiest uh, patients out of the Medicare program. So well, by the time you account for that, they actually were getting, instead of 14% more, more like 18% more than the Medicare program would have spent on these same patients. Yeah, I imagine, you know, offering people free gym memberships, you're, you're attracting the healthier patients to join that way. Fascinating. Exactly. So, okay. So maybe, maybe that's, well, it could be good or bad depending on your perspective, but it, that's a, a nice objective understanding of where the money is coming from. Quality seems to be a big issue now in medical care. Um, in addition to insuring patients, does the bill make efforts to try to improve the quality of health care? Well, it does, but I think I personally and the physician community at large really have some concerns about the way it goes about doing so and the pace with which it does so. Physicians actually, you know, I think 99% of physicians, are, if not more, are quite eager to continue to see the quality of care that's provided in this country improve so that we can take excellent care of our patients. And in the last few years, the quality movement has really been advancing pretty quickly and, and physicians and physician organizations have been really involved in this. So 
One of the, one example is a group that was run through the AMA called the Physician Consortium for Performance Improvement um, has just really in the last nine or ten years already started to establish a large number of evidence-based scientific measures because if you're going to reward physicians for quality or if you're going to tell patients about which physicians have the highest quality, you have to have a way to measure quality. So this group already has almost 300 measures in over 40 clinical areas. And the Medicare program has, has started to use many of these measures and created a program where physicians can report on their own quality um, based on their patient data. And it's been a voluntary program, and Medicare has really provided some small bonus payments to those physicians who have been willing to, to make quality reporting part of, of what they do on a daily basis. Um, that, that's been advancing. But the problem with the bill is that it, it does a couple of things. Number one is it actually starts in 2013 to publicly report individual physician quality measures and efficiency measures on, on the web. And that sounds like a great idea. And, and, you know, physicians who have great high quality, of course, that should be reported and patients should be able to find that out. The problem is that the science of quality measurement really at the individual physician level just isn't there yet. And I'm going to give you an example. So I work at an academic medical center where we take care of oftentimes some of the sickest patients, as you do, uh, who are referred in from, from other places. And and you can imagine physicians getting a little nervous if they're the ones who are volunteering to take care of the sickest patients that maybe their patients in the end won't have as high of an improvement score and the physician will actually end up looking like a low-quality physician because of that. And, and the technology is just not there yet to really make adjustments for that. So we don't want to create incentives for physicians not to see those patients, and we just want the system to be really up to snuff from a scientific level before it gets rushed rushed into into effect. And not only is it going to have public reporting, but the bill also also makes uh, quality reporting mandatory physician for physicians. So they'll actually have financial penalties uh, in the next few years if if they're not participating. So we just think it's it's a little bit ahead of the science. Where the Issues of death panels and such related to this quality um, measures? Well, the death panel thing itself, and this is one of those examples of, of uh, sort of the media getting carried away and maybe some politicians getting carried away. Uh, where the death panel thing came from was there was a proposal in the bill just to uh, pay physicians who treat Medicare patients a small amount of money just to sit down and record the patient's wishes about their own end-of-life care. And it didn't say anything about influencing those wishes or any requirement about what those would be, but just taking the time to get to know your patient and find out what they would want as an individual uh, in terms of their end-of-life care and actually write that down. So there are your death panels, unfortunately, and that, that really sort of spun out of control, but that's where that came from. I, I just wonder if there, if, if the centralization of healthcare will involve, to any degree, um, somebody saying, "Okay, we're not going to pay for this high technology test. It's just too expensive." Well, I, I think this bill doesn't move very far in that direction. It doesn't. Okay, well, let's uh, talk about I, costs then. So, What's that? I think that that raises the final issue I want to discuss right. with you, which is the cost of care. I mean. Everybody, I think, realizes we need to do something about the cost of care. This bill is great for insuring additional people. What does it do for controlling the cost of health care? 
Well, I think you make a really good point. I think it really it addresses coverage before it really addresses cost. And there are probably a number of political reasons why that happened. Um, but we still really are on a growth curve that's probably not sustainable because at the rate we're going, the Medicare program is going to chew up an enormous percentage of the federal budget in the years to come. And, and our federal government probably can't continue to afford that level of growth. And I would also say that that employers who are largely funding much of the health care insurance in this country are not going to be able to continue to afford this, this cost growth. If you're a large employer, let's say a Walmart or a Target, or, or that has a large number of low-wage employees, it's really reached a point where uh, the annual cost of a reasonable health care plan for a family of four is actually more than a, a minimum wage worker's annual wages. No. So that, there's going to be a sustainability problem there. And the bill really doesn't doesn't address that. There are a number of things in there that may cut costs here and there, but I think as a country, the kind of conversations we need to have about where we're going to save money in the healthcare system and be able to continue to have doctors and patients be at the heart of the system and making decisions, but doing so in a way that, that has reasonable cost is, is still ahead of us. How do you foresee it happening? Well, I, I'm not sure I see the way there just yet, because there's no easy fix. I think there are a lot of different groups. Everybody sort of has their pet peeve about where money is wasted in the system, and I think many of those things are true. I think we have a, a legal system that has a lot of problems, and so there's a lot of defensive medicine. I think uh, our pharmaceuticals tend to be way more expensive here than they are in other places. I think uh, sometimes we don't uh, think very carefully about the way we employ new technologies and where we spend money. But I think, as you, and the list is much longer, but no individual thing is going to be a panacea for the system, and um, it really is going to require a broad look. And I think, I think really here this is an opportunity for leadership both within the physician community and really within patient and uh, advocacy groups as well, because I think doctors and patients both have uh, the best perch from which to decide here are ways in which we could save money in the system and, and here are ways we don't want to spend money anymore. And, and to the extent that we can see some leadership both from the doctor and patient communities to step forward and start having those conversations in an open and honest way, uh, as a country, we're more likely to arrive at, at uh, cost reductions in a way that we can all live with as opposed to having to have them in, imposed from some outside force like the government. Jack, do you have any final words of wisdom for our audience about having better health or a better health care system? Well, I think basically what I just said about really trying to participate in the process. And I think this, this process is not a one-step thing. And, and as politics will continue, it's going to be an interesting few years to watch how this all plays out. And I'm, I'm sure that this new system that's uh, begun to evolve last year is going to continue to change and as elections happen and other things. But I think both for, for doctors and patients taking, taking time to keep up with what's going on be careful about what you hear. Try as best you can to verify facts uh, and stay involved is an important thing. Jack, I personally want to thank you and on behalf of all our listeners for all the time and effort you put in to really understand the bill and to update us on it. Thanks so much. You bet. Well, I hope you found Jack Resnick's comments about health care reform enlightening. I know I did. Uh he wrote a very detailed article entitled An Analysis of Health System Reform for Dermatologists, Elements and Implications of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act uh, in the journal 
of the American Academy of Dermatology. It's uh, volume 63, uh, issue number four. It starts on page 706. And you may be able to uh, purchase it online if you just Google uh, him and that article. Uh, I'm sure it'll take you to the uh, Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology's website, or perhaps you can uh, access the article through a local library. One of the key elements that he points out is that healthcare reform, for all its its complexity, um, focuses on the key issue of getting the uninsured insured, um, which means mandates and, 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 and paying for all that. But it really hasn't addressed the cost of health care very much. And you could sense, I think, as I did, that Jack doesn't think there's any easy answers for this. Um, I have a solution, and, and you can uh, access that information for free at the drscore.com website. So if you go to drscore.com, scroll down towards the bottom of the page, you'll see um, a link to my primer on health care reform, a Dr. Score white paper. And it describes in detail how I suggest we control the costs of our healthcare system. The approach offered in that white paper is very different from the one that has um, been proposed and been passed in our current healthcare reform legislation. Look, here was, here's where we have a system now that's insane. This, this idea of all these different insurance companies and our health care paid for by work, so if we're thrown out of job, we lose our health care too. I mean, it's just a crazy system, and yet we've adapted to it pretty well, and we make it work, and we have a fabulous health care system. Oh, no doubt it's not perfect, but it does perform medical miracles on an everyday basis. Under health care reform, we'll have more insured people. We'll have a, a better system as far as people having access to care. Is it perfect? Heck No. But I'm not totally pessimistic about it either. I think for all its faults, we'll adapt it too, unless it changes again, and um, we'll make it work. As Jack points out, there's a, a lot of good, and it's a lot like dominoes. Um, we want to insure more people. Well, we're going to have to have a mandate. And I think under that system, if it should fully come into being, as it looks like it will, we physicians are going to be able to provide great care to a lot of people. I'm sure the pessimists and those who would, for whatever their reasons, would want to promote doom and gloom think they're saying the right things in terms of trying to, to get rid of the reform or talk the bad side of it. But in the end, I think from a pragmatic standpoint, you know, it will be a different system. It will have its own different problems, but we'll work within it to give people the best care possible. On our upcoming shows, we'll be talking to a doctor in the trenches about how his medical system is working to improve the quality of health care and make health care safer. We'll also be talking to an attorney about the legal issues surrounding the growing use of electronic medical records. Well, that's our show for today. I so appreciate having you as a listener. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until we speak again, I wish you the very best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to health care empowerment. 
That's drscore.com, drscore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare. 